So it's been a long time since I've used a football analogy in church, uh, which uh, I, think is, uh, I think it speaks well of me. Uh, but uh, I, I thought I'd uh, use one uh, this morning uh, pertinent to the Super Bowl. How many of you saw the Super Bowl last, last week? Judging by attendance at church, I would say a lot of you saw the Super Bowl <laughs> last, last week. Um, the, uh, did you like it? Yeah, ex- ex- experts are, are calling it the greatest uh, Super Bowl uh, ever played. I took a survey last week, and most of you were Seattle Seahawks fans. Uh, sorry, about, sorry about that. Um, um, I... Uh, I'm kind of glad the Patriots won because, honestly, I think the Patriots outplayed the Seahawks. Um, as, as a former player and a longtime student of the game, uh, you know, they, they, really, they really dominated in just about every category on the field. But for uh, a few big plays, I think the game would not have even been close. The Seahawks would not have been in it. Uh, and so I kind of feel like, yeah, well, you know, justice served. It's okay. Um, but... Uh, but of course, that's football, right? The Seahawks got a few great plays in, and the game uh, was really close, and it was very dramatic. But what made the game really great for me, I saw the second half of it anyway, was not, was not all the drama, but it was the grit that was showed. And maybe if you're a, a fan of the game, uh, you know what I'm talking about. The story that's been in all the, the sports sections this week was at the end of the game, what happened? Well, the Seattle coaching staff made a really stupid call, right? All you Seattle fans, let's just hear the moan. Right, and the Patriots capitalized on it and 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 won the game. Uh, as someone who uh, who really uh, follows the game a lot, I, the call was was the wrong call, but it wasn't a stupid call because you know it was based on the personnel that was on the field, and they had to throw a pass one of the last three downs, and and Coach Belichick of the Patriots provoked them. And raise your hand if you have no idea what I'm talking about. All right, thank you. And the, but uh, the real story of the, of the final uh, couple plays of the game was that they had a Patriots defender, uh, a little guy who was an undrafted player. Uh, he would, uh, nobody wanted him. Uh, the Patriots took him. He was a nobody. He, he made you know, one of the greatest plays in Super Bowl history. The Patriots won the game. It was a really great defensive play, and, and he should be celebrated for that. But right before that, if you, if you watch the game, uh, the Seattle Seahawks had this amazing catch, Right? Right? You find that? Uh, now, uh, I actually used to play that position when I played wide receiver, and, and I have to say that was the luckiest catch ever. <laughs> there was no skill involved at all, right? The ball was in the air, the Patriots defender slapped the football, it did a funny spin in the air, it came down and bounced off of the receiver's foot, right? Flew back up in the air and happened to land right on his chest as he laid on the ground. <laughs> And so all the Seahawks fans are complaining about the stupid call on the goal line. Oh, come on. You shouldn't have even been there. Right? That's complete luck. Complete fluke. Now, if you have been following the Patriots of this decade, uh, you know that the last times they were in the Super Bowl, they lost the Super Bowl on lucky catches. Uh, and so that's when I saw that, I was like, I actually got a little sick for them. It was like, my goodness, you know, you have this really great team that's playing its heart out, and three times in the row, they're going to lose on just fluky plays. That's just totally 
discouraging. I actually changed the channel because I couldn't watch the replays. It's like, that's just, that's, no. I mean, that's just too much. My heart was just, you know, yay for Seattle. But I was like, oh, my gosh. There's just no justice. And then, uh, and then another incredible play happened. At least this one was based on skill. And, um, and then, I, I'm no dog in this race. I'm just commenting on the game, people. Um, um, but here's what I really walked away uh, from, from, with, from the game uh, with. Uh, several times uh, during the, the, the closing quarter uh, of that game, uh, the Patriots should have given up. They were down by 10 going into the fourth quarter against uh, a historically great defense. You know, they, they should have quit, but they very methodically came back and, and took the lead. They should have given up after that incredibly lucky play because, you know, I mean, it seemed like God himself was against them uh, at, at that point. Um, and it looked like they would, they would surely lose. So discouraging. Um, but, uh, but they won. And I just admire that kind of mental toughness. I admire, I admire people who, against all odds, just, just play the game. Uh, just, just do, uh, do their, their job. And in fact, that's the, that's the motto of the Patriots team. Do your job. Because they have all of these undrafted people. And their quarterback was drafted in one of the late rounds. And their leading receiver... Julian Edelman was drafted in the seventh and final round. Nobody wants these players except the Patriots, and then they become uh, great players and just sort of do their job. And, and that's actually why I like sports so much is you watch a game like that, and, I mean, who cares? It's a game. All of these guys make millions of dollars to play a kid's game. It's stupid, right? It's just totally stupid. And we throw billions and billions of dollars celebrating this Super Bowl, which is like this huge religious service. Um, it's insane, uh, but the stories are so awesome, and, uh, and I, I love the stories of, of grit and, and mental toughness there, um, and there, there are some life lessons in it. It's a parable, in other words. If there's any usefulness to sports like that at all, it's that it's sort of parables. Uh, you can draw life lessons and use them as, as uh, illustrations. I think uh, the game was a parable of mental toughness. It was, it was for me. It's like, Oh, you should lose. Oh, now you're going to lose. Oh, nobody recovers from that. And then, and then this incredible snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. I think there's a parable about not setting out to be a superstar, but just doing your job. You know, not worrying about winning uh, the Super Bowl, but just doing your job on the next play, the next step uh, of life. And sometimes life is like that, right? It's like, well... You work really hard, you get to a good place, and then a fluky play goes against you, or nobody wants you on their team. You know, all these things happen. And, uh, and so very often, um, to me, life boils down to uh, just waking up and doing my job, which is to say waking up and doing the right thing today, even if it doesn't seem like it's going to lead anywhere uh, positive. Uh, and I call that faithfulness in my life, and uh, I, I recommend it uh, to you. Um, we've been reflecting on uh, supernatural ministries uh, the last several weeks uh, in, in the sermons. Uh, Jesus commands his followers to do miracles, which is kind of ridiculous. I mean, he, he commands his followers to technically do the impossible, to go out and heal people 
uh, to make prophecies, to cast out demons, to you know, walk on water uh, on, on occasion. And uh, we, we actually partner with Jesus in the doing of miraculous things uh, in life. Typically, God just didn't, doesn't just drop miracles from heaven uh, in spite of the occasional spinning lucky catch. Uh, usually, life is a little bit more workaday, and, and even miracles, supernatural things, are a bit more workaday. There are things that we can do to grow in our capacity to flow in supernatural power. What are some of those things? Do you guys remember in the last few sermons? What are some of the things that we can do to increase our capacity to flow in God's supernatural power? Faith is a big thing. What else? I'm sorry? Being a, bring a friend, phone a friend. Uh, fellowship, unity, uh, working together, right? Because we all have different gifts, and our gifts increase our capacity to flow in God's uh, supernatural power. So the more we exploit one another's gifts, uh, we empower and encourage one another to do your job, uh, then we get, we get our tasks done. What else? Obedience, Obedience is a big one, because obedience increases our authority. So we follow the Lord's commands. And as you step out in obedience, great things happen. What else? Consecration. Yeah. Uh, whatever you sacrifice to God, he makes wonders for you uh, in, a, in a supernatural great way. Great. I've been thinking about faith. I've been thinking about faithfulness. The words are related. And here's an observation on faith, faith just to sort of start uh, our topic today. Um, when I speak of faith, when the scriptures think of faith... Uh, usually it doesn't have to do with believing in a given outcome. You know, when you're trying to, I don't know, heal someone, bring a healing miracle into someone's life. Uh, you know, it's, it's not about having a mindset that just knows that that miracle is going to happen. I think, I mean, that's, that's a form of faith. I just, I just know we're going to get a miraculous breakthrough here. That is a form of faith. But the sort of faith that increases our capacity to flow in God's power is, is, is I, I explain it this way. It's not belief in something, it's trust in something. I can believe in a number of things. You know, you can believe the Seattle Seahawks were going to win the Super Bowl. Um, and you can have, you know, and, and fans do that, right? They psych themselves into raging faith uh, in, in their teams and, and you know, and it, Helps your team, I'm sure. That counts for some. But the sort of faith that the Bible extols mostly is when you, not when you believe in an outcome, but when you entrust yourself to God, uh, no matter what the outcomes, uh, no matter what the situation is. So, you know, you could believe that the rope bridge across the canyon is going to hold, but you're not trusting it until you're walking on it, Right? It's a life of trust. It's a life of entrusting that really develops us in, in faith. It changes you when you live a life of trust, which means if, if you're trusting yourself to God, then you're risking something on God. If you're not risking, you're not really trusting. You might believe in God. You might believe that he's good. But if you're not risking anything on it in life, then you're not really trusting. See the difference? So I really like trust. Talk about that. Because it makes clear to me that faith is more than a mindset. It's, it's more than something you believe in. 
It's really a lifestyle. It's a, it's a way that you live. For those of us who live a lifestyle of trust, you are taking great risks on God. Still, you have to have a good mindset about it. Um, uh, there is great power in simple optimism in life. If you have risked something at God, on God, if you are way out there with God, if you are in the blue water, as we say around here, um, then, uh, you know, it's helpful to be optimistic. It's helpful to believe that good things will happen for you, lest we fall into a hard-bitten mindset. And here's one of the things that defeats us as we try to grow in faith. We take great steps with God. We do great tries. You know, try is such a huge word in the kingdom of God. It's, a, it's our church motto. We keep trying things. Maybe we fail sometimes. Maybe it seems like we might fail uh, this time. Um, and, and it's easy uh, once you've suffered hardship for the Lord, you've made sacrifices or experienced failures or something that, like that. It's easy to fall into a hard-bitten mindset. Uh, an example from Scripture that I kind of like and appreciate is uh, one of those times where Jesus was telling his disciples that he was going to go die. In, no, he was going to go into Jerusalem and the disciples told him, well, you're going to die there. They're going to they're kill you there. And Jesus says it set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He knew the hardship that was awaiting him there. He knew that the crucifixion was coming. Uh, but he went anyway. And the disciples freak out. And then Thomas stands up and says, well, let's go with him that we may die with him. One of the reasons that we call Thomas doubting Thomas. But I look at that and I say, no, that's not doubt. But it is a sort of faith that I recognize. Right? It's like, I will trust Jesus enough to walk with him, and we'll probably all die. <laughs> what do you call that kind of faith? I call it hard-bitten faith, but I don't know, what do you, what do you call it? What would be a good word, do you think? Do, do you ever have that kind of faith? You know, well, we're going we're gonna to lose the game, but I might as well go out in the field and, and lose with dignity, you know. And it keeps you from doing your job, is what it does. You, go, you kind of go along, you go through the motions. And we can fall into that, those of us who work really hard on faith. We can just sort of give in and sort of live a life of half faith. The way that you know you're not is if you continue to be optimistic in spite of challenges, in spite of, in spite of failures or, or setbacks. Um, we want to be people who risk great things. And we want to be generally upbeat about it. That's my reflection on faith uh, for today. What do you think? That makes sense? You up for risking great things on God? Are you up for being upbeat about it? Optimistic about it? I would appreciate it if you were. Because actually it's hard for me. Uh, I, I am not. I, this is going to shock you. But I'm not generally an optimistic person. Seriously. I'm, I'm not bubbly. Or sarcastic. Um, so that's one way we can be a community of faith and help us help ourselves. Uh, I want to talk this morning uh, specifically about deliverance ministry, uh, casting demons out of people, uh, which is something that you hear a lot about in every church. Because uh, it's really, really popular to talk about it. Um, yeah. 
What I love about casting demons out of people uh, is that um, it can change a life profoundly and, and quickly. It's just wonderful. It's almost, it's almost more transformative than a healing miracle, you know, uh, rescuing somebody from a, a sickness or a severe injury with supernatural power. Uh, the word deliverance in Scripture, when it talks about delivering people from demons, you know what that word is? I know some of you do. Sozo. When it says, and he was delivered from demons, the Greek word is sozo, which is interesting because that word is translated differently in other places. That's the word that we translate most often as salvation. Uh, you know, when so-and-so was saved, literally that means they were, de they were delivered. Uh, and so when scripture, in the Bible stories, in the gospel stories, when it says that someone was delivered from a demon, it means they, were, they experienced salvation. They were saved from a demon. They were, I, like, I think the proper translation is probably restored. I think we should be talking about restoration. Uh, usually when we use the word uh, salvation. All to say that Jesus and, you know, the gospel writer saw it as, as part and parcel of the same fabric. You know, what did Jesus do? He went around restoring people. Uh, if they were paralyzed, he restored their, their body. If they were demonized, he restored their freedom. Uh, and if they were lost in darkness, then he restored their relationship with God the Father. All the same word all the same thing. It's what we do in the kingdom of God. Uh, but deliverance ministry offers such profound experiences of it. I just got so many great uh, deliverance uh, stories. Um, there was a time uh, back in, the, in Boston before I moved here. Um, <clears throat> I, was, uh, I was asked to pray for a young woman who was just coming to Jesus, just starting her relationship uh, with Jesus, just come to faith and was still trying to figure it out, but she was very sick. Uh, she had uh, a liver disease that uh, made it difficult for her to metabolize food uh, and particularly iron and other minerals like that, and it was a, uh, um, it was a progressive disease. I meant her liver was getting sicker and, and sicker, and people didn't know what to do about it. Uh, so I was called to pray for her one evening, just to pray for healing. So we were praying for her, and, and it was one of those times where I really felt the hand of God come upon me. Like physically, I just kind of felt the Spirit show up, and, and just sort of, here's some power, Jordan. And then I realized, oh, there's a demon involved with this sickness. There's a demon uh, as a grip uh, on this young woman. So filled with that power and a sense of indignation, I just said, in the name of Jesus, you demon of affliction, you just get out of her right now, get away. And she, she didn't know anything about the kingdom. Uh, but she, when I said that, she just popped up, opened her eyes, looked at me and said, it's gone. I, something, something just is gone. A demon left her. And her life changed. She was healed from that moment. Uh, her liver disease went away. And she got a great story to tell as she began uh, her life uh, with Jesus. Um, I, uh, I teach on this topic uh, on occasion. In fact, I think I'm teaching on this topic at the HIM conference this year. I have to look at my notes. Uh, but I was, uh, I was doing a conference in San Francisco where I was teaching on deliverance ministry. And a bunch of people came. There was this young lady in the front row uh, who came for, I don't know, reasons of her own. At the end, I just prayed, oh Lord, uh, you know, send your Holy Spirit among us. And the lady stood up and screamed and started punching herself violently in the face. Just boom, boom. I mean, like serious punches. And uh, being a really sensitive uh, pastor, I, I paused. 
and I invited everyone to pay attention uh, as she smacked herself. A sensible, um, heartful man would have jumped in and grabbed her fists, but I thought, oh no, this is a good illustration. I don't know. <laughs> uh, what I said to the people was, this, this is what a, a demon of, of self-judgment looks like. You know, uh, our self-accusation is a way that we often let demons uh, gain some control over us. And, uh, and then, you know, after uh, a reasonable interval, I said in the name of Jesus, demon, let her go. I had to repeat it a couple times, and then she screamed, and she felt peaceful and said, you know, it's gone. Dramatic example of what demons do to us. You know, they, they beat us up. Sometimes uh, they get control in our lives and cause us to beat ourselves up or to engage in self-destructive behavior. Demons are puppet masters. They turn you into a puppet, and then they pull your strings. Uh, sometimes you know that your strings are being pulled. Sometimes you are so deceived uh, that, that you don't even know it. How do demons get control of us? Uh, through sin. That's how they do it. Uh, sin is a very broad category, though. Sinful behaviors are a big deal. You know, fear itself uh, is a sin. What happens is that demons tempt you to engage in sin, and sin is addictive. Um, when God was warning Cain not to kill Abel, his brother, God said to Cain, uh, Cain, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to master you, but you must master it. In other words, it's a contest of who your master is going to be. Uh, sin is basically heroin or cocaine. You start dabbling with it, and then pretty much it controls you. You think that you want it, but really it's calling the shots, right? And that's, <clears throat> that's what sin does uh, in our lives, generally speaking. I'm being very, very general here. But once you are controlled by a sin, it's very easy for demons to control you with that sin. And then gradually, step by step, you just give up control over your life. Demons control you that way. And sometimes that control reaches such a degree that we call it something like demonization or possession. Uh, people talk about being possessed by demons, but the biblical word for it literally means demonization. Uh, a good English translation might be infestation. Uh, you get invaded, you get infested with a demon or with demons. And then they control you. The Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. God's not kind, trying to control you. God is trying to give you control over yourself. Satan and the devils, they're trying to actually control you. So God is a liberator and demons are controller. Um, symbol of control. I could go on. I got lots and lots of stories. Um, of uh, people whose lives were changed, whose self-control was restored through the casting out of a demon or two or three uh, that had come to dominate them. That's the end goal of deliverance ministry, give you back your freedom. It doesn't solve everything, but it gives you back your freedom so you can make good choices. Then you have to make good choices. Uh, but at least, at least your freedom uh, is restored. Technically, all supernatural ministry is weird, but if you want people to think you're really weird, talk to them about casting out demons. Once uh, you, uh, you talk about casting demons out of people or share stories about times when you cast demons out of people, uh, that's it. You're a, weird, you're a weirdo for life. You are no longer normal, and you are not allowed to speak in polite company. I exaggerate a little bit. 
Uh, but just to say one barrier to deliverance ministry is the feeling like, oh, it's weird. Most people sort of intuitively have a pocket for divine healing. You know, non-believers will come to a healing service on the off chance that they're going to get a miracle. I kind of understand that culturally. Uh, hard to get non-believers to come to a deliverance service. Uh, it's just another, another level uh, of weird. Uh, so a lot of times people shy away from it. A lot of times uh, Christians do. But that's, that's funny given that Jesus was probably first known for his deliverance ministry above all else. It was his calling card. Uh, his most plentiful uh, miracles in the early going, according to uh, certain Gospels uh, that you read. I uh, have excerpted from Mark chapter 1, our passage for the day, um, verses 21 through 28. And this is right at the beginning of uh, Jesus' uh, ministry. Uh, he has just, uh, just gone public and gathered a few disciples together. They went to Capernaum, which is Jesus' home territory, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue, which was sort of like their church or their school, went into church and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit, he was demonized, cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now we know that he was possessed and there was a demon shouting through him, controlling even his speech at that point. But imagine how that would have looked if one of you stand up right now and say, uh, hey, you're not fooling us, Jordan. Uh, are you here to just mock us and destroy us, Holy One of God? Okay, that's probably happened uh, a few times, but... But what would you think? It's like, that, that guy is just freaking out. Um, that's just weird. And this was a polite church attender uh, doing this, which just goes to show you that someone can be really influenced by a demon, but still sort of live a lifestyle that looks otherwise. Uh, Jesus uh, isn't fooled by it. He's not freaked out by it. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching? As if the deliverance itself was a facet of the teaching, right? Jesus' teaching was not just what he said, it's also what he did. And this was new. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. That was the beginning of the legend of Jesus. Uh, he began casting demons out of people, just telling the demons what to do, and they did it. That was totally unique. Nobody else had ministered that way uh, before. Um, deliverance ministry uh, was a big deal and, and stayed a big deal throughout all of Jesus' ministry. His ministry immediately showed a clash of kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness with the kingdom of God, with the kingdom of God. And that was Jesus' message Good news, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Kingdom, meaning king's dominion or king's control. I am restoring godly control uh, to the world. And if I am doing that, the devils are going to freak out. And Jesus immediately demonstrated that. Uh, Jesus' ministry wasn't just about appeasing a distant God. It was about walking with God to overcome powers of darkness in the world. As the Apostle Paul put it, 
the kingdom of God does not consist in words. It consists of power. It was a power play, a power clash. And Jesus showed that. And accordingly, Jesus commanded his followers to cast out demons wherever they went to preach the good news. Uh, We talked about that in uh, the past couple of sermons. It's a commandment. Wherever you go, preach this message. The kingdom of God is here. Is here. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. Why? Because we are bringing order to disorder. We are bringing freedom to oppressed people. Uh, So demonic oppression is not something that we can ignore. And it's not something that we can tolerate. We should all participate in deliverance ministry at some level. Meaning there are four basic things that you'll all want to understand at some level. And I'll just go through those four things and that will be today's sermon. Uh, Number one, you probably want to understand how you can tell when someone is suffering with a demon. How can you tell when someone is, is actually controlled by an evil spirit? Sounds weird just to say it, but have you ever asked yourself that? Those of you who have been around power ministry settings before, how can you tell when someone is, is really influenced or are really controlled by an evil spirit? When they are demonized, uh, as the biblical word says. Well, here are a few ways. Down and dirty tips. Let's just be very practical about this. Number, number one way would be like obvious manifestations. Um, if... Uh, you are in uh, a circle of people at church praying uh, to Jesus and then someone's face contorts and they start drooling and their eyes roll back in their head and they say, no, Jesus, no, get away from me, no, no. We call that a sign. That <laughs> uh, doesn't happen too often, uh, but, but it will occasionally happen. I've had it happen to me on the street. I was sort of walking down the street, minding my own business, I don't know, checking texts or something in the middle of the day. And, and some person, I've had people run across the street, jump in front of me and saying, Christians are not wanted here. Oh, good to know. I missed the sign. You know, and then, but they don't, demons don't like the Holy Spirit. They don't like people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. They don't like people who look like Jesus. Jesus freaks them out. Right? They know that something bad is happening in the world. That bad thing is called the kingdom of God. And they're a little bit on edge about it. So occasionally they just freak out uh, in situations in which they see uh, the Holy Spirit manifesting or they see someone uh, filled with, with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so, so you get that. Uh, <laughs> I have a friend who uh, was walking in, uh, in a foreign country in, in Bangladesh. She was walking in this... Hindu neighborhood, and this woman ran out of her little cabin, ran up to her, and in perfect English said, uh, go away, these people are ours. And the woman didn't even speak English, you know, uh, but my friend was an American. Obvious manifestation. Uh, and the only question then is, is what to, to do uh, about it. If uh, you're praying for someone and suddenly they get very sick and feel like they need to vomit, you know, there's there are certain physical manifestations uh, that, that you look for. Another way to know if a person is oppressed by a demon is, is prophetic revelation. We're going to talk about the ministry of prophecy here in the next week or two. But sometimes you just discern supernaturally, spiritually, that there's a demon involved with the problem. Somebody has liver disease. 
as in my previous illustration, and the Holy Spirit just shows up and tells you, no, there's a demon causing that, then you know, then you cast out the demon. You know, you want to make sure that you've heard the Lord correctly, but that sort of supernatural discernment can be really helpful. Uh, I have learned over the years uh, to be suspicious in certain circumstances. Uh, and, and I mean suspicious and, and not sure. If you are ministering to someone who has some sort of severe trouble in life and they have in their background, say, a great deal of addiction, be suspicious of demonic activity. Because if you have suffered with an addiction of some sort, uh, whether it be a, you know, a chemical addiction or uh, a, a sexual addiction or porn addiction or a food addiction, I mean, there's so many different kinds of addiction. Addiction by nature means I have given up my self-control to something. And whenever you give up your self-control, you're just like opening yourself to a lot of demonic influence doesn't mean that you definitely have a demonization, but I'm suspicious given the circumstances. Another thing that really opens up a person to demonic influence is, is severe trauma, particularly extended periods of trauma. Someone who has been abused over a long period of time, you know, not even their fault. But what that does is that it teaches a person to fear to give themselves over to anxiety and fear, and fear is the opposite of faith, right? Fear, fear and lies are the two weapons of the enemy, the only weapons he has. But if you give yourself over to fear, you know, even if you've been unfairly victimized, then you can open doors. And, uh, you know, we'd say more uh, about that. Jeannie teaches really well on that. She's actually teaching a class on the effects of trauma right now on Saturdays. Um, makes, me, makes me suspicious. Another thing that makes me suspicious is disproportionate behaviors. Everybody experiences anxiety. Some people worship anxiety, right? And when I see disproportionate behaviors in people, uh, behaviors that seem just like cracked, right, like addictions, uh, then I am suspicious. It doesn't mean that I show up and say, you know, demon, get out. But it means that while I pray, I open my spiritual ears to hearing discernment from the Holy Spirit. I think there might be something spiritual going on here, so I'm just going to stay open. As I say, I don't hunt for demons, but I patrol for them. So those are some ways uh, which it might come up. Question number two, what do you do to get rid of the demon? Well, that seems important, right? Um, you have figured out that there's a demon in someone. Maybe it's obvious. Maybe you're just suspicious. What do you do about it? Deliverance ministry, casting demons out of people, is a contest of convincing. Jesus shows us a model in that synagogue in Capernaum. Demon, be quiet, get out of him. Shut up and leave. Everybody say that on three. One, two, three. I feel so warm, fuzzy. That's it. I mean, that's the model. You don't need to know any more than that. If you say, in the name of Jesus, shut up and leave, then the demon should go. At least you've done what you need to do. But it doesn't mean that the demon will go because this is a power play. It is a contest of convincing. Demons, here's, here's what you need to understand about them. Demons are like spoiled three-year-olds. That's, that's what you need to understand about the nature of demons. They are mostly invisible spoiled three-year-olds, which is a nightmarish thing 
uh, for, for, for those of us who have gone through the terrible twos and threes. Um, they're brats. Now, Hollywood tends to paint them as lordly and powerful, which is stupid. They are lying, spoiled brats. Uh, schoolyard bullies, elementary schoolyard bullies. That's, that's what a demon is. And so you say, get out. And what will a brat do? Throw a fit is what the brat will do. Like, no, no, I'm not listening. No, 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 no. And, and there's, there's a contest there, and it's a contest of intimidation. Ultimately, the demon will leave if they are scared of me, meaning they are scared of the presence of the Lord in me because I'm not all that scary in and of myself. But if I look like Jesus, if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit like Jesus, then they will quiver, right? And, you know, some people are like that. Uh, you're... I remember uh, when I was like in kindergarten, I had this really unruly class, first grade, and a really unruly class, and sometimes the teacher would just feel overwhelmed and, and say something like, I'm calling in the principal. Silence. Because for some reason, we were all scared of the principal. I don't really know why. It's just the, the word principal to this day strikes fear in most of our hearts, right? Like, because this is a person of authority. Anyway, it's, some, it's something like that. And, and the principal is going to come in and just, you know, be very uh, fearsome. Um, sometimes the demons protested even against Jesus, right? Uh, the demoniac on Mark chapter 5 who had the legion of demons, thousands of demons in him. Uh, we don't have time to read the story, but Jesus shows up at the scene. The demoniac runs to him and says, you know, what are you doing here? Leave us alone. Come on, give us a break. And Jesus commands the demons to leave the man. And you know what they do? They don't leave. Instead, they argue with him. One of the things they say is, look, we'll make you a deal. Just send us into the pigs at least. Don't just cast us out. They were bargaining with the Lord of Lords. Because that is their nature. They are brats. They knew who Jesus was and they were freaked out. But they were still being bratty. And so Jesus, I think, you know, plays one on them, sees them as an opportunity and says, okay, go in the pigs. One, because that will show everybody just, you know, how lowly you are. And, of course, they rush to the pigs. The pigs are like, nuh-uh. They actually drown themselves rather than let the demons stay there. And just, it shows that demons are more vile than swine which in that day and age uh, was a big deal. So Jesus kind of wins the day. But it just shows you that demons can protest and be bratty, and you need to be ready for that. In the name of Jesus, leave. It doesn't seem to be gone. This is so perplexing. No, it's not. You're dealing with a brat. How do you deal with a brat? Authority. Power. It's the only language bullies understand. Power. All right, enough about that. Um, number three, how can you tell when the demon is gone? Uh, number one, uh, manifestations. Uh, we read about it uh, in the synagogue story from Mark chapter 1. Jesus says, be quiet, come out of him. And then the man shrieked. Uh, have any of you heard this in deliverance ministry? You guys have done it and, and heard, heard the, uh, the wail, the defeat shriek, you know. And we've seen this, you know, in brats. No, 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 no! Yay, it's done. Uh, that's what it's like. And that happened a lot in the deliverance stories. Uh, it, you just sort of hear the wail of defeat. And that's, that's a good indicator. 
Uh, that's a good sign. Or obvious, our obvious manifestations will cease. Sometimes when a demon freaks out, it will send a person into convulsions. We see this in Mark chapter 9. Uh, the little boy would often go into convulsions when the demon got freaked or asserted its control over the boy. And so somebody is freaking out on the ground or looking like a floppy fish. And in the name of Jesus, demon, get out of him. And it all stops. And the person's restored. Uh, physical control is restored. That's a, we call that a sign. Right? It, it isn't rocket science. Or someone is sick, you cast out the demon, they get better. Uh, someone is, is experiencing a great deal of physical pain, you cast out the demon, and, the, and the, it goes away. Um, so sometimes it's just obvious. Uh, physically, uh, symptoms can cease. A person uh, is controlled by some addiction. In the name of Jesus, spirit of addiction, get out of the person, and the person is no longer uh, addicted in that fashion. I have great stories about that. Uh, I was going to tell, but I've heard people, I've, I've seen people freed from just the most outrageous sorts of addictions instantaneously uh, through casting a demon out of, of them, sexual addictions or chemical addictions. Uh, they still have to make good choices in the days to come, but they're just freed. Have you ever seen uh, a heroin addict come off of heroin? It's violent, right? They can often... Have you ever seen a heroin addict come off of heroin instantly without any symptoms or sickness at all? Seen it happen with deliverance ministry. Um, so sometimes it can work like that. Oftentimes those recoveries take a lot of work, so don't misunderstand me. Um, but symptoms cease, and that's a good sign. Um, sometimes you know a demon has gone just through prophetic sense. Uh, revelation. My favorite all-time deliverance story had to do uh, with this, uh, this young girl, uh, Gloria, we'll call her, uh, who I knew when I was in grad school. And she started hanging around our church plant, but she had been raised in a very strict Buddhist family. And, and she felt guilty about hanging out with the Christians. She never quite committed to Jesus, but she liked to hang around us. And I got a, a phone call one night, well, it was about 3 in the morning, actually, or 3.30 in the morning. Uh, Jordan, um, we were having a little impromptu uh, worship service over in the basement of the dorm, and Gloria came, and now Satan is speaking to us through her. What time is it? <laughs> uh, this is my life in grad school. So I jumped in the car, I went over there to the basement, I walked in, and when I showed up, she was in her right mind, but I said, let's pray. Uh, we pray for the Holy Spirit to come, and sure enough, she started, you know, behaving oddly, and she was this little, tiny, really pretty Vietnamese girl uh, and started speaking to me with a deep, gravelly voice that sounded really weird. Said, All right, so this is what we call a sign. Uh, she came back to herself for a moment. I said, this might be the time when you want to give Jesus control of your life. Uh, and and uh, she, she started to say yes. She started to say yes, I want it, but you could see it was choked off, and then this gravelly voice spoke again. So we said, in the name of Jesus, leave her. No, no, she's mine. In the name of Jesus, leave her. And then everybody in the room immediately felt it go. Just supernatural. We just discerned it. It's like, and we all looked at each other. And, and, and Gloria never even opened her eyes. She, just, she smiled. And then the first words out of her mouth were, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. One, yeah, that's a good story. And she ended up just being one of my best friends. Uh, so I love that story. Um, but once you got the obstacle out of the way, once you got the controller out of the way, she was free to give her life 
uh, to Jesus. Deliverance ministry, restoration ministry, right? Um, but we, we felt the demon go, and then immediately, of course, we could see that her behavior changed. Um, but the easiest way to figure out if a demon has left the person you're ministering to is to ask them, because almost always they know. Almost always they feel a change, even those who didn't know what demons were beforehand. You know, even the young ones, like, it's gone. It's something just changed. And then you can explain, I think a demon was holding on to you, and they just let go, uh, got intimidated, and left. Four, what do you do to make sure the problem doesn't repeat for the person who suffered? And this is often uh, the money question. Jesus tells this little parable, illustration, teaching uh, in, in Matthew chapter 12, and sometimes people misunderstand it. He says, when you cast a demon out of someone, the demon will go wander in the arid places. Uh, but then uh, the demon will say to itself, uh, life for me was better when I lived back in that person. So he will return with seven demons more evil than itself, and they will reinfest the person. Uh, and really, Jesus is talking about the importance of people being plugged in to Jesus, of really walking in faith, walking in discipleship. But there are people uh, that quote that little parable to me and say, you can't cast a demon out of someone who's not a Christian because the demons will just come back later. So don't do that. That will be unkind. I'll say, no, I love to cast demons out of non-Christians because then they see Jesus more clearly and come to the Lord. But what Jesus was talking about was if you get restored, if you get freed from a demon, um, you have to take care of business or the problem can return. You can continue to make poor choices if you want to, right? Uh, you can quit smoking today, but if you start smoking again next February, you're just going to get addicted all over again. Um, that's what Jesus is saying. Uh, so deliverance ministry, restoration ministry, again, should be understood broadly. Casting demons out of people, that's part of it. But turning people into solid Jesus followers is also part of restoration, is it not? Uh, and so we need to be good at that. We need to be a community of deliverance. And I'll just leave us with this point. This is what we do, right? This is the kingdom of God. This is what we do when we do our job. This is what we do when we're faithful. When we encounter oppression, we free people from it. And that needs to be normal among us. One of the things that means is that people need to be able to tell stories about their deliverance from demons without any stigma, without any embarrassment. I have some deliverance stories myself that I will tell in subsequent sermons uh, in this series. But it's, it's just what we do because we get restored from the oppression of the enemy. And we all need to be in on this ministry. We can't feel weird about it. I feel weird if we're not in on it, because I know that people are suffering needlessly, right? So, I feel like saying, any questions? Because if you've never heard about deliverance ministry before, that was a drink from a fire hose. There was an awful lot coming at you really fast. Um, but it's more, it's more of a starter, uh, more of a primer. Here would be a bad reaction. One, that's too weird, I'll never try it. I don't understand it fully. No, because what you want to do is try it and then learn more fully as you go. 
battery action number two. I'm afraid I might have a demon now that we've talked about them. Uh, and surely with a crowd of this size, a number of you do. Uh, maybe you're not possessed, but you are influenced, you are infested, you are afflicted by evil spirits in, in nasty ways that really compromise your freedom and generate fear in your life and make it hard for you to live a life of faith and, and faithfulness day in and, and day out. Um, and it's worth sort of exploring uh, the devil's role uh, in your life. The best way to do that is to go to a small group, go to an Ahana group, and just ask people to pray for your freedom. Might involve casting a demon off of your back, or it might not. Right? It might involve some sort of restoration, but restoration is broad. It can be any number of helpful things uh, from the Lord. Uh, again, uh, at least once a, once a month, we do these dunamon meetings uh, Dunamon is Greek for place of power. And uh, we often uh, study things like deliverance ministry and even try to do it on occasion. We're meeting as a Dunamon tonight at 5 p.m. Um, if you're interested in coming, I'm not saying we're cast demons out of people, but if you're interested in coming and being part of those training sessions, talk to me or, or talk to Jeannie, and uh, we will make it happen. But it's part of being supernatural people. It's part of being people of freedom. And, you know, it's part, it's part of doing our job. Amen? Well, let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we pray as Jesus taught us, let your kingdom come. And I know, Lord, that as your kingdom comes, the other kingdom will freak out. <clears throat> I know that the kingdom of God on earth is a clash of kingdoms on earth. So I pray, Father, that you will make us people of, of deliverance. You make us people of restoration, people who are experiencing uh, deliverance from you and people who are providing deliverance to those in need. I pray that you start us on uh, journeys of power, journeys of powerful ministry to those who are stuck, those who have tried other things but really need spiritual help. I pray, Father, that you would put your hand on us and Disciple us in this so that many will be restored. Many will be saved uh, so that we will remove blockages and bring people to the Lord in faith. Uh, we commit ourselves to walking supernaturally with you. In Jesus' name, amen.